You're now listening to the Something Good Podcast Network. Please press any key to continue. A kiss, as defined by Dan Webster, is something pleasing, a caress, a gentle touch. But there's another kiss that isn't in Webster's. Hey world, we're kids! Some critics say they don't make music, they just make noise. Yeah, kiss! Kiss implies the extreme in the theatrics on stage, utilizing fire and smoke and bizarre costumes and the ever-consistent, constant concealment of their true identities. Speaking of which, Kiss is going to have its own comic book soon. Take Kiss with you. It's fun. Show your friends and be the first. Now. And welcome once again to No Time to Turn, a Kiss Nerd podcast. Nerd, fucking nerds. <laughs> and uh, we have been tracing and tracking the history of Kiss year by year, album by album. And uh, we're really just getting rolling on this thing. And again, the caveat is we are not experts, nor do we claim to be. But uh, no, we're we, just three fans that uh, know and love this band so much that we could. Uh, they were decided to make a podcast out of it. We just we always find ourselves talking about it sooner yeah. or later. I think uh, of a certain generation, you you hang out long enough, and eventually the conversation steers to kiss. And exactly, both whether you love them or hate them. But uh, so we've been, I guess. Rolling along, we're we're into 1975. That's correct. They're on tour in support of Just to Kill. Mm-hmm. Getting kicked off of tours. Getting kicked off of tours. They're kind of in this weird catch-22 mode where, you know, they're trying to get the band in front of as many eyes as possible. They'd rather them be on opening act for bigger acts rather than headlining smaller halls on their own. But they can't seem to... Uh, gain any traction in that they're primarily still playing i guess at this point headlining small or medium sized i guess theaters yeah it's kind of playing like uh like the most famous example is probably the winterland in san francisco that's on all those uh dvds and uh, youtube videos well places of that size uh you know there's the capitol theater in new jersey and i guess uh the michigan theater in Detroit and places like this, 3,000 seat kind of venues. Um, but uh, kind of uh, want to kind of backpedal just a little bit because there's, a, there's some interesting stuff going on. Everything, of course, is moving super fast. Supersonic speeds. I know. They're already like uh, in a new album mode post Dress to Kill. Well, you know. Prior to Dress to Kill, we probably should have touched on this on the last episode, but I, I oversighted this, and that's my fault. But, you know, um, the uh, production team of Kenny Kerner and Richie Wise approached Neil Bogart about moving Kiss to a different label. They're pulling their power play here. Oh, what in okay. this works for them, I don't know. That is a big detail. But uh, it's also interesting to note that Kiss isn't signed to Casablanca at this point necessarily. They're signed to Bill a coin they're signed to the Rock Steady Management. Which okay. is Bill a coin and uh Joyce Biowitz. They are the ones that are signed to Casablanca and the advance was only fifteen thousand dollars. Yeah. Which at that era might have been, you know, for an independent label, okay. 
Now, but that does conflate a little bit with the um, the whole narrative of we'll make you our manager if you can get us a record deal. Well, yeah, that's. But I think he already he already had an in on with uh, Casablanca, which of course you know would have predated Casablanca. But yeah, because that seems to be Neil the Bargart one bit of info with, that everyone agrees actually happened. Well, the the idea was they were going to. He he felt reasonably certain that he could get them the recording contract. I mean, he gave him he gave a thirty day, yeah, which like which that. is which is unusual, but you know it worked out. But at this point, you know they've got two albums. Neither one of them have been successful. Uh, the second record not as successful as the first, which is no. never a good thing. It's like, the first album already flopped, and this one flopped harder. <laughs> well, they wouldn't say necessarily flopped, but you know they're they they're definitely enjoying a sophomore slump, enjoying being you know uh, yeah as a new band already <laughs> hardly, hardly enjoying, but they're gaining a lot of traction. I think it's interesting to note here that although there's not a lot of commercial interest in Kiss at this point, there obviously seems to be some professional interest in Kiss in this point it's mm-hmm. all because of the live show partly yeah but they're seeing some sort i mean obviously if there's no commercial support yet there's and there's professional support they're seeing the that there's a potential for commercial right you know commercial there's, interest they still so, have all the faith in the world in them well certainly casablanca does but now if richie wise and kenny kerner thinks they can move them to another label that means other labels are interested um this will prove true a little bit later on. This is going to be a tumultuous... Tumultuous. I even said it wrong trying to say it. <laughs> tumultuous year for Kiss. Anyhow. <laughs> Easy for us to say. Uh, um, we are professional radio broadcasters. Absolutely. Of course. Yeah. So, now, kind of looking at uh, some tour info on Dress to Kill, though... Uh, it seems as if this is actually one of the kind of talking about tumultuous periods. See, I, I shouldn't have even I, I tried it. And I shouldn't have tried. Um, it it's seems rough. to be a crazy, it's a rough year. crazy year for the crazy band. Year. Rough year. Um, uh, it seems like because I'm double checking through uh, kissconcerthistory.com, which is an offshoot of the kissfaq.com. Okay. And uh, they're saying that this was a pretty important tour for the uh, band, specifically the Beacon Show. Uh, the Beacon Show that happened on, I just lost the date, it was right in front of me, on uh, March 21st. Well, that was set up with Ron Delsner, who was the promoter in New York. Mm-hmm. And if Not I, thinking it was going to do well. Yeah, he didn't think it would do well, and he kind of did it as a favor, and it sold out, I think, pretty straight away, enough that uh, they, he, he, they put up a second show, and I think that one sold out as well. Is yeah, that right? Three, yeah, there were three warm-up gigs booked before, and then, yeah, there was two shows booked uh, for the Beacon one. and But this was also the first string of shows to uh, morph the intro into, ladies and gentlemen, the hottest band in the land, Kiss. Yeah, that was allegedly the idea of J.R. Smalling. Do you know where he got that idea from or where he claims to have gotten it? And I, I believe that's true. Uh, I've heard the story, but uh, you'll have it's to... It's not uh, immediately ringing the bell. Yeah, me neither. There was a television commercial at the time for Toyota, and that was their tagline. You wanted the best, you got it. Toyota. Oh, okay. I mean, yeah, it works. And Simple. that's where he, because prior to that, Sean Delaney had been doing, you know, 
put your two lips together and, and kiss, kiss. Yeah. which is uh, terrible. <laughs> yes, <intro>. it is. <laughs> and if, I mean, you know, Sean Delaney is the unsung hero in Early Kiss. You know, in my opinion, I, I think he doesn't get the credit or that he is due for a lot of stuff, but that is not one of his better ideas. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, so yeah, they're, they're, you know, those are the first, the beacon shows are the first headlining shows for kiss in New York city. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are very important shows to him. Who was um, on the, who was on that bill or is it just kiss? That's a good question. Uh, it says right here, Jojo gun, uh, uh and blue oyster cult. A lot of sh- that was kind of their uh, the band they toured with the most in the early days, wasn't it? What's that? Blue Oyster Cult? No, not necessarily. They played shows with uh, you know the famous the famous turnaround was that they opened for Blue Oyster Cult on New Year's Eve seventy three seventy four yeah and then seventy five seventy six New Year's Eve it's usually they they cited a year later but I think it was two years later. Blue Oyster Cult was opening for Kiss, you know, and that's right. That's, that's always like they opened for BOC, but then BOC was opening for them. Her, her, her. See, that's the legend, though. You gotta, that's one, yeah. one you always print. Well, yeah. And then there's a few other kind of random uh, shows they had with a uh, man and James and the gang. James uh, gang. Yep. James gang. Like James, James and the gang. And I, I was like, I, we watched I, the video I on them yesterday. I conflated the and <laughs> Joe Walsh himself. Well, he was probably not in James gang. I think by that point. Oh yeah, you're right. I forgot about that. They went on without him. Yeah. Um, you know that, but going back to all this business stuff, there's mm-hmm. a lot going on here. The, what what ends up happening here that's important to note is Kenny Kerner and Richie Wise move in and say we can move Kiss to another label. Yeah, so well, who are because they kind of? Because Casablanca has not paid any royalties yet. Nope. Because there's no money. Exactly. So everyone's in this weird catch twenty two, and Neil Bogart has bet everything on this record label. He's you know to the point where he's refinanced his house. He's gone to vegas and gambled money to make payroll i mean crazy stuff but he's also started a relationship a personal relationship with joyce biowitz which is bill of coins you know second hand in rocksteady management okay this creates a massive conflict of interest now because Kiss's manager is now one of their managers is having a romantic relationship with the head of their record label. Yeah. You say, I don't know this story. So now you've got who is she working for? Is -hmm. she working for Bill, thereby working for Kiss, or is she working for Neil? And thereby working for Casablanca. Uh. Because how does Casablanca find out about this Kenny Kerner Richie Wise thing? Yeah. So that also explains why you don't see Wise and Kerner back on board for Dress to Kill. Mm, There it is. There it is. And they're summarily uh, exiled from the Casablanca scene. Interesting. Uh, So juicy. (laughs) So in, 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 in the wake of all this. Would you say that tea is hotter than hell? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I'll, I'll, I won't do that again. <laughs> so in, in, in the wake of this, this is all I think happening basically in the spring of 75, I guess as Dress to Kill is kind of hitting the streets. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Joyce Bywitz leaves Rocksteady. Yeah. And... 
marries and it will eventually marry Neil Bogart. Okay. So that kind of solves that problem. To degree. <laughs> that's how that, uh, that that's how that uh, that relationship uh, that kind of ties up itself. That's how that ties the room together in so, this uh, time period. And and if if I've got my information correct at this point, this is when Casablanca renegotiates the the deal. They they put forth a new recording contract. This time it's with the band members. Right. It's with Kiss, not mm-hmm. not Bill. So that avoids the original contract, which allows a little more elbow room because they were due. They had a end date, and I think it's October that they have to pay royalties. You know, like they have to come up, cough up with at least the first royalty payment. So, well, here I've got it. I was going to say, this you got the schedule on their uh, business. It, actually, I think it's this new contract defers it to October twentieth. Mm-hmm. But there's still a lot more that's going to happen in this time frame. Now, somewhere in here, the decision is made to make this live album. Yeah. Now, uh, these are the stuff. These are the things where it gets interesting to me. It's like, whose idea was this and why? Because you've heard them discuss all the time how live albums were the death nailed to bands. Double live records didn't exist. That's, that's not entirely true, though, because there's a bootleg market that has been rising in the early 70s yeah and that's done really well to the point that it's become almost an issue it's a problem in the industry this bootleg live album deal that's been coming up Mm -hmm. to the point where some of these labels have their own imprints and and then uh before streaming there was bootlegs yeah and um the big live album at that point, you know, the Rolling Stones had done Get Your Yaya's Out, which yeah. was pretty successful. And that was to get to, again, combat the the bootleg market. But um, see, so Made in Japan. Made in Japan was a big double live album. And then Humble Pie's Rockin', Rockin the, the Fillmore. So it wasn't unheard of. It was uh, it wasn't a norm, but it wasn't abnormal either it wouldn't be considered a good business decision back then and that humble pie record i think did really really well for humble pie on the against their studio records you know more people refer to that i think i'm looking at this with hindsight right so i don't know about in the time but it seems like that had a bigger impact than their you know their other record their their studio records i should say well the charm of live albums was to have like advanced uh you know uh more advanced or then more uh you know lively performances of you know hit songs to kind of you know sell different versions of to you know the consumer and things like that and half the time you know say a good example is the deep purple one where the highway star track on that one is way more fast and way more powerful than the studio oh, version yeah. is well that's yeah that, in my the, opinion. well that's the idea you want to capture a certain energy and excitement yeah and this is going to definitely prove true for kiss because their studio albums certainly aren't matching what they're doing live and i think they're just starting to really come into their power live because now obviously we we've got the hindsight there's tons of bootlegs that have sprung up, particularly just in the last, you know, 10 or 15 years, the yeah. digital area. Mm-hmm. These recordings that have come up that never, I've never even, you know, I can remember seeing bootleg live albums even back in the 80s. Yeah. But 
some of the stuff that's been popping up, I've never even knew existed. Well, it's because can, the, that legendary term on the message boards and stuff, the hoarders, the people that uh, have the bootleg rare recordings that haven't put them out digitally and stuff. It's just a handful of people that have slowly started just kind of drip feeding new well, things out there. And, and But the important thing is you listen to these things and mm-hmm. you can see the progression of them as a live act as well. And yeah. If you listen to the, I mean, there's even now there's, you know, a board recording of them playing at the, at the Daisy. Yeah. So and that's 70, you know, 73 pre live or pre and first it has album. like Peter yeah. Chris doing like the stage raps yeah, and so stuff like you can that. See, and, but just even the performance itself, you can see how it's progression, you know, then you've got recordings of them on their first tour and in versus by the time they get to you see them like you know, developing. And this is this is also a very very fat you know you, 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 looking back you think it's oh man it's like two years time it really isn't it's more about 18 months yeah and it's and it's happening really 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 fast so mm-hmm. you know we're talking spring of 75 and they just released dress to kill and for our of course the thing i have to do every time our charlotte north carolina date was april 25th at the charlotte park center with rush as the opener reported audience 3000 capacity yeah uh, park center mm-hmm. yeah that yeah. world that yeah a lot of that shows was, with Rush. There was in that era the the Charlotte venue for most bands was the Park Center because Charlotte yeah. wasn't the major city that it is today. Most most of the big Coliseum bands usually went to Greensboro back then because it was a bigger building, and that was like the big arena for North Carolina. Got it. Back then, right. Um, but uh, getting lost here. Sorry. <laughs> so, so, uh, so in May of '75, mm-hmm. you know they have it in place that they're going to do this. So they've already made the decision that they're going to record these shows. They're going to go out and tour, and the label's not going to pay for it either. No, Bill Coin is still financing this on his American Express card still because there's no calls. money coming in. Uh, I, I saw a number somewhere that it, by the time they got through with this tour, that all told, and not just for this tour, but just all told, he was in about three hundred grand. On that's this. what I've read wow. too. Wow! And in today's money, that's close to a million. Oh yeah, easy. Yeah, and, and you know, and, but this will get resolved by the end of the year. But right now, everyone's gambling, so uh, the record company is floundering yeah so it it looks like this might just be the end this might be your last this might not be your last chance at making it this might just be your last go around it's like the last part of your career and if you're gonna do it just do it with uh you know gumption and uh you know with no they did they did it with conviction and then they just they may have you know and i've never seen this stated anywhere but I can't see how they couldn't have looked at this as being possibly a way to kind of cap off their career because it might be over now. Yeah. This might be the last go around. They're going to make them or break them. I yeah. don't, but you know, this is after Casablanca put out that Johnny Carson record, I think. Yeah. The Johnny Carson record is out and has completely bombed. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I think they've had, they've signed, uh, it's interesting. It's in this time they've signed, uh, an all-female group called Fanny, who've had a moderate chart success. Fan- not nothing, nothing great, but Was it's Fanny, probably uh, 
Louie. Louie. Louie, Louie. No, that's stories. Stories. Okay. Yeah. My bad. I got to look up Fanny. Produced by Kenny Kerner and Richie Wise. Oh, shit. Oh, there it is. But but Casablanca signed Fanny, and then they also signed, interestingly, uh, T-Rex, who two years prior, three years prior, had been as big as the Beatles ever were in Europe. Yeah. yeah, they never connected in America for whatever reason. They, you know, they Bang a Gong was a hit, but but that was it. They didn't. Con- whereas in Europe, like I said, I mean, gigantic, huge success. I mean, he's referenced in all the young dudes by well, da- written by David Bowie. He's you know, referenced in a lot of stuff. He's referenced in the the Who's. You better, you better, you know, yeah, you better, you well, bet. You better and, yeah, exactly. But but he's and he's still a Titanic figure over there. You know, he uh, Mark Boland he. Was killed in a car wreck in 1978. Yeah, um, and you still don't hear his music on, you know, American classic rock radio or anything like that. And, which is a shame. It was, and, and, and undoubtedly an influence on Kiss. But T Rex signs a, has has a, a deal in place with Casablanca for the American release of I think it's Light of Love. Yeah, and it does nothing. It's a good album, but yeah, you're right. But it, you know, it hasn't done anything to help Casablanca. So. Uh, I think they sh- and then the Johnny Carson thing too. They shipped out, I, I, from what I read, seven hundred and fifty thousand copies, thinking they were going to go uh, gold or platinum or one more, or whatever. Oh yeah, I don't, I, I don't know what they were thinking. That's <laughs> so they that's got so that bizarre. To do with too. I mean, this is you, to be fair, it's the era before there was anything like VHS or, or anything like this. So having these bits recorded and you can play it back is the closest thing to you know. You know, a to physical having, product yeah, of or entertainment. To be able to, you know, there's no there's no videotape or anything. It's no. not like you can go back and watch the greatest hits of Carson now on YouTube or whatever. You I know? know it. So this is this was kind of like the precursor for all that. It, but it, you know, in in theory, it seems a good idea, but put into practice, it didn't work. No. And now they're on the hook for this, and so somebody somewhere is coughing up the money for this. I, that's the other thing I can't figure out is I was who's just putting about to the bring money into this. So I'm, I'm in, when you saw me, just kind of my eyes kind of glossing over reading a few things. I was, I was kind of reading up on that because I felt that's where it was going. So yeah, they make mention that Bogart couldn't finance the tour, so a coin had to pay for it. And multiple accounts always talk about that this was their last ditch effort. So my my curiosity is. Before we even discuss who's fronting the money for it, if Kiss has released three records and not been successful, why are they putting all their remaining funds, number one, back into Kiss, and number two, how did it wind up being more cost-effective to have a mobile recording van record multiple shows and then regardless of how much was done still, still go back go in and do overdubs so That's, i'm kind of curious on how because they always say oh well it was the most cost effective way we could do it uh, and all pay three of, Kramer. Yeah, well, all three of us being in those situations that sounds like a whole lot of manpower and money right there 
I, I don't have the answer to that. That's and a good question. The but. only thing I can think of is um, specifically on the uh, fandom website, which kind of pulls from different sources. Uh, Gene mentions in his book, Kiss and Makeup, that very little corrective work was done in the studio, and that most of the studio time was strictly devoted to the mix down and the multi-track recordings, and also emphasized that Kiss couldn't have done extensive overdubbing, even if they wanted to, thanks in no part to the Johnny Carson album fiasco, and extremely major budget allowing the band simply just not time to do it. Well, let's, but then Eddie Kramer completely contradicts him. Well, we'll get let's let's get to that. Let's okay. get, let's before we get to all that, let's just talk about okay, the shows that are recorded. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, in the in the time frame they're done. Um, May sixteenth. Well, the first show allegedly recorded was May sixteenth at Kobo, which was their first major arena sellout. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it made sense you'd to record that, uh, as I understand, none of that was used. Interesting. I don't. I, but I, you know, I, right, I, right, I don't right. Know. None of us truly know. So what your word is just as good as mine. So I mean, no. But they've already, you know, the 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 point I'm trying to get to is that they've already made the decision here in advance. You know that they're going to do this. They're going to record this stuff to the point that they spend the previous two days at the. Michigan was it the Michigan Palace I guess is what it was called and they do the photo shoot for the album cover mm-hmm. all okay. the all the the poses all the, the pose shots cover and all that and stuff and uh, also for the I guess the inserts of the book yeah that they're going to include what I don't, I don't know if that the packaging had even been conceived of at this point but there was a photo shoot done for all of this yeah just getting as much promo done as possible then the next day the promotional films are done mm-hmm for uh rock and roll all night come, come on, on and, and love, love me. me and was that it yep they only did it, too. yeah and um you know this is an interesting thing that they're they're still you know they're, they're building a they're, campaign they're building some sort of campaign now these promo films were probably uh to help promote Dress to Kill because mm-hmm. they're promoting you know their Dress to Kill songs and yeah. the 70s bands really didn't use video a lot to, well, for promo did well, they this, the, the deal I think a large part of this was for uh, use you know conceivably for television in America but I think probably was also more thought of to uh, help them expand in the European market mm. it's putting them in places where they can't tour mm-hmm uh, how that was used back then, I don't know. But I would imagine just a simple press kit, make up a videotape and well, send it, or I mean, a Betamax, but, whatever. But for what? For what show? You know, I mean, I'm sure there were music shows that existed back then. So, but like for a lip sync performance videos before MTV, it's uh, yeah, I don't know where you would uh, stick that. Well, no, I was imagining it being press because, like, what Russ was saying for like booking tours. So, like, oh, you I'm, want you want to see what Kiss is like? Check this out. That might be part of it too. I don't know. Yeah. I, but you know, for whatever promotional purposes, they film these these spots. They're done at the Michigan Palace. And I personally love them. They showed up on the Kissology box sets that yeah. came out about a little over ten years ago. And um, God, it was probably longer than that now. <laughs> but uh, but uh, that and. It's interesting because there's two different mixes. I've seen mixes with the studio versions, and I've also seen versions with the Alive songs over top yeah, of them. I, you know what? I know that you say that. I think I've seen that, too. So that's also kind of interesting that they're almost that well in tempo. i tell you what else is it. Well, yeah, that's true. They're uh-huh. pretty, pretty consistent. Uh, what's interesting to me, and this starts a trend that you see through all their videos, 
and this is this is some here we go we're gonna go full nerd here <laughs> oh here we go oh yep 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 yeah, i know where you're Gene going simmons is not playing with a pick i know it he, now, he plays fingers. with a pick live but in all the videos he's miming playing with his fingers yeah and I'm like, why does he do that? That's almost always the tell. Even if he's like doing a TV performance, it's, it's with fingers. It's, he's pretending to finger when when he plays live, though. He's playing with a pick. He did that in all the '80s videos too. Acts like I, he played with his fingers. I, I don't know if he still does that or if, where that finally trails off. I, I haven't, but I know that that's true all the way up through the '80s. He's he's miming, pretending to play with his fingers. The story I've always heard is that he thought he looked cooler playing bass with his fingers. Well, then why uh, don't no, he you just learn it? <laughs> no, yeah. he doesn't. I, I, exactly. I don't think he looks cool at all playing with his fingers. <laughs> but, you know, it, and, he, and it seems like he wears his bass differently, too. It seems like know, he's wearing and, it higher yeah. in the videos. Yeah, than because he of where live. he has to pick at it. It's like up here to yeah, his like, chest or whatever. So now he's just kind of like this, you know, playing on his peck. <laughs> it's really odd that he would make a decision to do that. Mm-hmm. But And what was funny is uh, literally uh, when we were uh, kind of getting the uh, – origins of this show kind of started up uh, i had just run across a video for is that you on youtube and i was telling russ i was like oh did you ever see this and he's like oh yeah it's probably just a live clip synced up with the audio i was like maybe but i don't know it still looks pretty cool and we started watching it and, and then as soon as it moved over to gene he's thumping along on that bass with his fingers we're like holy shit no this was actually recorded for a music yeah. video oh my god <laughs> it's the- like that's the only tell we can have sometimes with the star <laughs> guitar Oh yeah, I am. <laughs> well, that's jumping way. Oh yeah, I know. Yeah, we'll sorry, get into we'll that later on. <laughs> we, we we go down nerd rabbit holes. We, just, we, we just, have to apologize, yeah. But, but yeah. So they record the sh- they well they record the they film the videos or the promotional films as yes. they are called. Yes, yes. They get and started they do the, the photo shoot. So you know, I, I'm assuming that they know that this is going to be used for. Yeah, for promo. For mm-hmm. and potentially this live recording they're going to redo. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure Kobo was recorded and for whatever reason was deemed unusable. So they come back in June in Cleveland, which mm-hmm. is another, again, staying in the Rust Belt. They're strong, one of the strongholds they have. They record this show. Uh, again, as to what was used and what wasn't, we'll we'll get into that in a minute. Yeah. But then they come back a month later in July on the 21st. They record two shows in Davenport, Iowa. And uh, why, why two the, shows in that spot know. of They're all places? This, well, and that's what's unusual. It's like they did two shows in one day in Davenport, Iowa. I don't know the details on huh. that. Yeah, really. It's kind of weird. Got one of these books about it. Yeah. And then uh, two days later, they're in New Jersey in a place called Wildwood. Yeah, the one place outside of the Midwest. Which, as I have understood it, was what the majority of that show is drawn from. I think it comes from the Davenport and Wildwood shows. That's interesting. Yeah, really. Because in New Jersey, no uh, New York shows, even though they were a hometown uh, New York band. Well, the Davenport show is the only thing that uh, any kind of mention is made on the actual album as to where they're at where he says and uh, i think let me go rock and roll he says come on quad city yeah because uh quad city uh in iowa was still like new to me like i hadn't heard about that well i i you know i didn't know about this until i read about it probably like 10 years ago or something i never knew what he was saying i couldn't figure out for the life of me what the hell that was my my kid brain always heard something like get off your seat or something like yeah, that I, get I, off yeah. your seat when i was young i thought he was like 
had some weird nickname for Ace or something because he just all I could hear was "Come on, Quasi." <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, he must be calling Ace that or something." I don't know. <laughs> it sounds like a Mortal his Kombat name is Quasi. This is part of the fun of Kiss, though. I and mean, this is the thing that 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 I, I think gets lost in the in in over time is that there's so little information, you know, especially when I was young, that you had for Kiss. You know, less is more. Yeah, and you had to fill in the blanks with what you thought you you know you, a, a great part of what made this band work so well was because it, it was what you brought into it with you. It was a, you could project anything onto them, a mystery, and it would come back truthful to you mm-hmm. in your experience. This is back when rock and roll was full of mysticism and well, everything well, too. But Kiss to the greater degree because you didn't yeah. even know what they look like. You know, I think uh, that's something that got lost. I think even on them, and I think it's lost to other fans, like to rock fans that don't like Kiss. Mm-hmm. I think it, a if you don't like Kiss, kind of says something about a person's own sense of imagination and creativity, or whatever you want to call it. I agree with that. I think you know the you know the more someone made this week, we saw all of us saw the the the, the post on. Uh, or on Facebook where they were saying, you know, Rush fans, Rush fans and, and Kiss, Kiss fans. Yeah. But Rush fans I don't seem to have that same, you know, they're more into the brainy esoteric. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Yeah, it's way more esoteric than Kiss is. I think those are the kids when I was in school that, like, didn't play with their toys, you know? <laughs> they <laughs> they kept like, them in the box on their in, wall. Yeah, they kept them, or, you no, know. They were, uh, was, I'm a little of both. See, you know? Kiss fans wanted to go party and, you know, and uh, and drink or whatever. Rush fans wanted to read Ayn Rand. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> you know, just whatever, boring. <laughs> so, I love Rush, but that's a whole other podcast. In, and yeah, it's still yeah. so interesting that those are still so diametrically opposed sounding and mentality type bands, yet they toured together. Well, I think early on, Rush was more of a direct rock and roll group. If you listen right. to that first album, mm-hmm. which this is before to me they... the only album that's worth listening to. <sighs> Uh, Again, this would be a whole other podcast. <laughs> but is. the first Rush album is way more Led Zeppelin than yeah. what Rush became. Yeah. You, you just triggered Cap's uh, rock and roll oh, it's like, uh, history it's like, sense. Oh, I was like being a Kiss fan. It's like, I know, you hate Rush. I get it. You're I cool. I hate Rush. I'm just saying they're just not... They just didn't capture my imagination, certainly as a kid, that Kiss did. And that's my point, is that Kiss sort of exists in its own self-contained context. If you start trying to compare them to other bands, they're going to come up different. Exactly. And and they don't have to be contextualized towards other bands. They they exist only in their own self-contained context. And again, what you get out of it is what you bring with you. Yeah. The less we knew about them, the better it was. That heightened the mystique, that heightened the excitement, that heightened everything. And it kind of gave that cult following its own sense of identity because exactly. it was this shared understanding you you know this sort of outsider status that you all shared because you you know you're probably the misfit kid at school or you feel that you're the misfit kid at school you might even have your own little troop of friends that are equally misfits you know sure you're fitting in but you don't see yourself as fitting in you don't have your tribe or anything yeah and you're building this tribe and it's all built around this idea it's less than it's less than what the band is than what it means to you Mm -hmm. and so it's always interesting to me to find other people as i've gone through life and hearing their perspective and their take on something you know all of this is going to evaporate in time obviously and we'll talk about that as we go into the 
other episodes down the line. Right. But right now, everything that they're doing is building this special identity, and that identity isn't the identity of the band. It's the identity that the people that love the band, their fans, are pulling from it. They're all part of it. You know? And I think the packaging on the album really celebrates that. Well, Absolutely. It, it, it does, and it kind of gives you... This is going to be the first album that kind of gives you any sense of identity because of the, what, the way they've packaged this. They wrote notes specifically to you, the person that bought the record. Right, but it also, and more importantly, gives indication of them as individuals. Mm-hmm. There's little individual notes. It yeah. gives... Each one is written... You know, for lack of a better term, in character. Exactly, it's and all it different gives, fonts now you, and writing you, styles. You've got an idea of these guys, but now you're getting an idea of their character because, for the first time, now they're communicating in a more direct way as an individual via these little handwritten notes that are, you know. I was about to ask who's reproduced got the n- on the inside of the record. Yes, and I was about to ask who's yeah, got the I'm, notes. I'm going to go. Ahead. I'm pulling them up now. Well, so it, the uh, the legendary thing supposedly behind the notes. Uh, if we do want to get into that, just a second. Uh, Peter did not physically write his. Of course not. Oh, <laughs> uh, guy, no. They're they're a little hard to read. Here we go. Yeah, Aces starts off. Dear Earthlings, yeah. uh, the gravity on Earth isn't quite the same as it is on my planet. I swear. Gene or someone made him put that in as a nod to him falling on stage all the time. Maybe. Who knows? I mean, <laughs> no, it that sounds fucking stupid. Write it. <laughs> <laughs> who knows? I don't, I, you know, it, that, it, it wasn't that, you know, we could sit here and pick apart as the, the, the reasoning behind it. Yeah. But the ultimate reasoning is now for the first time, Kiss is giving some insight as to who they are as individuals. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got this perception already, you know, you're, you're kind of... We gotta remember, you, you know, it's not it's not uh, the information age like it is today. You've, yep. you you're, you're having to fill in the blanks on a lot of this stuff. The best you might have at this point is if there's been any kind of article written in a magazine about them. Yeah, and that's going to still be fairly limited at this point. They haven't broken big enough to that they're going to attract that kind of media interest yet. Certainly not just you know, certainly not on any kind of mainstream level, but even in just the rock press. Right. They're kind of almost ridiculed by the mainstream rock press at this point. Exactly. And and would continue to be. Um, Yeah, he's like, uh, I'm slowly getting used to the gravity here on Earth. I've always wanted to play lead guitar and uh, express myself visually to an audience. Uh, When I play guitar on stage, it's like uh, making love. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) These are so awkward, too. (laughs) uh, If it's good... Uh, yes, the handwriting on this was a little sloppy. Uh, we, oh, we can get each other off every time. <laughs> Thanks for helping uh, getting me off. Love, Ace. <laughs> I mean, but, but and then bro- Jeans, he kicks it off with Dear Victims. Yes. Peters is a high cat people. And Paul's kicks off with My Dear Lovers. Oh, my Dear Lovers. <laughs> well, that, that was the ambiguity that he was going for as far as the, you're still coming out of the post-glam thing where that sort of, uh, that sexual ambiguity is, is yeah, yeah, here we got Nothing feminine. arouses me more than seeing you get off on me. Yeah. Well, hey. <laughs> You know, but that that's that all worked. I mean, here you've got, uh, you know, again, like I said, for the first time, a little bit of identity behind each individual. Exactly. I was going to say that like, that's a really good point. Not since the Beatles really has like a whole group 
kind of uh, express their like individual personalities like on a packaging and, of and, a record and like it that. Hell, and it works because you're establishing now that, that Kiss is a four-man group. Each person, not one more, not one is not more important than the other. Now exactly. They, now they're going to sell this to the moon that it was all, it was my idea or it was our idea or whatever. But at the time, it's a four-wheel drive thing. Everybody has his own role. Each Everybody's one's important. Everyone's a star, and uh, it that's a that's a big part of uh, drawing in their audience even more to them. And it's making this unique cult thing, and now it's expanding to mm-hmm. the point you know this cult's going to overgrow to the point where it's not going to be a cult anymore. It's going to become. The Kiss Army. The, well, that's already now. That's the other thing that's in play here. It's a good point to transition on. The Kiss Army is forming in around the same time. Period. Around the same time, there's there is the course the story that is told, which I think is a gross exaggeration of what actually occurred. Yeah, but um, it's like the radio station in Cleveland. No, or? I think it's in. I'm actually getting that pulled up now. Yeah, it says in January '75, Starkey and Evans, two teenage Kiss fans uh, from Indiana, uh, began yeah. contacting local radio station WVTS in an effort to get Kiss music played. After being repeatedly turned down by program director uh, Rich Dickerson, <laughs> appropriate name, Starkey and Evans began calling WTS, claiming to be the Kiss Army. Additionally, they sent letters to the station and signed them Bill Starkey, president of the Kiss Army, and Jay Evans, field marshal. By July '75. WVTS had began playing KISS records, often referring to the KISS Army. Some of the letters included threats to blow up the station before long listeners started calling in and asking if how they could enlist. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of variations to that story. Uh, I think Dick, it, Dickerson, or whatever his name is, is made up. But once KISS got wind of this, or I should say once uh, Aquoin got wind of this. Yeah, that's better. That got turned in very quickly to, oh, fan club yeah exactly they're like ooh, I think, perfect you know here's something that here's where i failed to do the research on this is uh it seems that i recall seeing somewhere that um starkey what was his name bill starkey bill starkey ended up getting kind of steamrolled under this deal i think he had the understanding that he was going to be you know the president of the kiss army even run the kiss fan club and that of course quickly grew bigger than he was going to be able to handle and it got taken away from him he just kind of get overwhelmed. he just got he just got ground up in the gears in the making of this thing yeah that i do remember that story which is understandable because it was happening so fast and so quick because it grew even faster than a coin management could keep up with by the you know within the next two years Mm -hmm. and we'll we'll get to that later on in other in our other episodes it becomes the beast that eats itself so but this just goes to show how how uh uh dedicated their fan base is at this point and this is a young band i mean they're they're they haven't been you know again they're not two years old officially as far as releases go and they're they're working they've already got three albums out and they're recording essentially their fourth Mm mm-hmm so all these shows are being recorded. Well, we've, we've talked about that. Yeah, yeah. Story. we recorded the shows. The ship date is on, I believe, September tenth. Yeah, and this is after they had to go and uh, record all their overdubs and everything too. Yep. Well, here's what's interesting. There's a lot. Okay, they spend, as I understand, they spend about two weeks doing this. Yeah, yeah. 
and the only thing that stayed truly live on the on the, throughout the whole thing is Peter Chris's drums. Yeah, everyone always says that the drums have always been live, but then what you were saying, the story changes a lot on what was overdubbed and what was kept. Well, the, I mean, I'm it doesn't surprise me and some people feel like this is a cop out, you know, oh, it's not real live album blah 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 blah. This is pretty. This becomes the industry I, I, standard. I think this is it's it's not unusual to go and doctor up anything that's like, uh, you know, poorly poorly recorded. It's like uh, yeah. you know, they if you're going to get the explosions on tape, that's going to overpower your microphone, and the explosion in your room is going to sound like pow, but on the microphone it's going to go. Yeah, because it's going to be too much. Yep. So they got to. They obviously they're going to have to augment that. They're going to have to do stuff like and, that. And I totally drink the Kool Aid when, when they explain their reasonings for the overdubs they did. Every time I'm like, yeah, I get it. And it I, makes no. It, it makes no difference. And really. VH1 actually did that classic album special in the right. mid 2000s where Eddie Kramer was actually pulling back some of the original tapes, like on Strutter, like hearing Paul's vocal outtake right. on that. And I'm like, yeah, I'm glad they fixed Paul doing his. Yeah, because like that. Well, People well, aren't singing into the microphone, not, or they're hitting the wrong chords and things like that. Well, that's because you, you know the whole idea is you can't capture that energy on tape. You have to kind of replicate it. And and to me though, at the end of the day, what they've done is they've made a live album that really puts you in the center of it. It yep. sounds great. It's 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 better sounding than you know say the get your yayas out i agree with that you know which is probably more to a true live album but it doesn't retain that energy and excitement quite the same way it's it's way different it's it's a different thing uh you know um lou reed's live album rock and roll animal is a great live album but it you know it's a different again it's a whole different thing it's a whole Mm -hmm. different approach even with the deep purple one it's still kind of like you know it's still very live albums were very jammy at the time too even that lou reed one yeah kiss doesn't jam no (laughs) i mean their jam is the extended the extended guitar solo and drum solo that's about it but those are all part of the the show of let me go rock and roll which is a rehearsed jam they're yeah, not they're exactly. not they're not freeforming that uh so you know i have no problem with the with the doctoring on it i no. think i think what they ended up with i mean that's that record is is a you know it becomes what what it is which is the high mark and the the standard for live albums and, well, and you know i think for all of the naysayers and criticism and stuff, everyone sort of has to kind of kneel and acknowledge that this is the penultimate live rock record. And let me ask you this on a producer aspect, kind of like nitpick, nitpicking it just a little bit. So we're, we're cool with the overdubs and stuff. What about the volume of the audience? Because they talk about before how they almost wanted the audience to engulf the music at times, how it would almost overpower it. Well, to what Russ's point, uh, that he made earlier, I mean, it puts you there at the show, that uh, audience volume level. Mm-hmm. That's the interpretation I got from listening, from hearing all of that feedback from the band and everything, yeah, I too. Think, I think it works better, even in, when we get to the live, too. We'll talk about this more, but I think it works. It just works so much more. It feels so much more immediate, and, and you feel like you're in, in the whole... I'm... I'm you're in the arena with Searching the, the whole, words, yeah, the whole arena, the whole room. You know, it doesn't, you know, whereas as opposed to, it sounds like uh, 
it was the audience pops in at the very end of the song yeah, yeah. or or it's you hear a just, moderate applause or you know it just after sounds the song. Fa- you know you've heard soundboard recordings where it's just come picking up from the mics yeah right. and it sounds like there's no audience at all you yeah. know and and even though you know it's a sold out house or something but it just sounds like five people going Woo. It yeah. sounds it sounds like a rowdy live show it's, because of all the audience noise and everything. We've in it, it, it's, I mean I don't know if we want to go track by track here, but I mean the variations between the studio versions versus the live versions, and to talk about like you know how uh, you know there's dubs and stuff like that with the audience and the stuff like and uh, the guitar dubs and things like that. There are still moments on some of the tracks where you feel a little bit of a live energy to it. Like oh I think yeah. On, on strutter there's like you know you hear something fall over and things like that well uh, i think i mean i feel like we could go uh, track by track but we don't have to spend a lot of time on each one just kind of here we go we could kind of name the track and then be like what's the highlight of this version for Whoa. you since all of them do kind of have a little bit of a different thing like for instance deuce there's not much different but i love gene's vocal on it i think there's a lot different i think it's got a lot more charge to it than the studio version mm-hmm. and and they're not playing or if he is it's not nowhere near as pronounced that stutter guitar that he does on the studio version yeah that dick-a-dang. yeah i i it, it, I, I always found that distracting mm-hmm. whereas in live it's just da 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 Playing it through, mm-hmm. it sounds like it's it, it works so much better for me. I think you know, and I think that's such a great opening song. And you know, those the the you know, even if it's embellished, the big cannon fire at the front. Oh yeah, it's great. I mean, you know, you just hear that thing go crack, and you're just like, you know, yes. and you're there, and you're I mean, you're sold right off the top. I mean, mm-hmm. it doesn't take much to go, oh hell yeah, and then you know? immediately follows it up with strutter. Yeah. You know. <laughs> it's like shit. <laughs> well, Strutter, I mean, you know, it it carries it over, uh, but um, oh, does the I extra drum is, break on it? Does that little tucka 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 again? You know, yeah, they did that. I found that an interesting choice. They they double the intro. The studio version only does the round once, and and it makes sense for it to do the round twice. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I can't remember if it's the first verse or the second verse, but I can hear something like happening, you know, behind the band, or it sounds like something's happening on stage, like a mic falls over or something like that. I never noticed that. It's something weird. Like I can't uh, opt to like put it on and really listen for it. I think, but. I think you're visualizing that special we watched because on that Paul knocks over his microphone. Maybe it's. So I, I think you're. I think uh, you're visualizing that bit where he knocked his microphone over and someone came ran picking it back up. It for may him. be a subconscious thing on that then. Because I've done that before. I could have sworn that there was a certain little solo break in a song. Nope, nowhere to be found. And it was like a random live you, video yeah, that I had found. different stuff. Yeah, that happens to me all the time. And I hate it. But again, <laughs> the album puts you there. So it really does and but i think this is the superior strutter i yeah. love this one paul's vocals on it great well, all of this is superior i think is the point i'm kind of getting at here mm-hmm. all of these blow the studio versions out of the got water got to choose got to choose it's way superior you know it's but I, that one i think is the most obvious where they would have had to gone back and beef up stuff that vocals well not just the vocal the guitar part i don't you know if you listen to the boots them playing the what i call the horn part the you know mm-hmm. you know that's been beefed up obviously but yeah. i mean i would never have noticed that had i not had the ab comparison because you're not supposed to notice it i wouldn't have noticed that but I, as soon as i heard there were overdubs I, for some reason the woo 
and, uh, the Katachu. Well, oh, it, well, and all okay. of a sudden I heard that and I'm like, okay, yeah, they, they weren't doing that live. Well, not probably as strong. But go now, it goes to, well, you go Hotter Than Hell. Yep. And then Firehouse. Uh, Firehouse. Firehouse, the woo, yeah. Mm-hmm. Sounds like they're off mic. Yeah. Well, almost yeah. like it's off, oh, and it's left that way, like on purpose. And I've never understood why that is the way it is. I'm not either, but it almost kind of adds an interesting effect. It does. It almost sounds like they're, it's like, you know, they're almost like. Gang vocal. Yeah, I don't know what's going on there, but there's still a looseness to it. You know, there's still like, I, like I was saying earlier, just moments yeah, you know, of it, livelihood it, well, like that, and it and it, and it kind of keeps that vibe going. But um, and I love how we totally skipped over higher than hell because even this version still doesn't redeem the song. I, I think with uh, songs like that and uh, Firehouse, another good example too. They just kind of take these live versions and go up, you know, a couple of BPMs just because they're in the moment and well, jazzed, and it kind of gives it a different it, energy. And it, and it has that kind of uh, reverberation of of a, of a hall, the live. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sure that you know you, you, that has to be replicated, obviously, but it works. They do it so well. Um, then we flip it on over, and we got nothing to lose. Which is one of my least favorite Kiss songs. I still don't get it. even yeah. this version it is just, just oh, it's so good. It just doesn't. Peter's doesn't vocal is so great. Yeah, well, Peter's always good. Come on, do you not like songs about booty stuff? <laughs> That's no, what this it's is. Just, it's just poetry. It's just, sure I never poetry. thought it was a great song. Uh, uh, I find it, goes it interesting. Into, it goes into Parasite from there, right? Uh, come on and love me. Come on and love me. And I love that version. That just fucking smokes. Yeah, that's a great version of that. That that you know, I I'm surprised that didn't stay prominent in their set list as they went on. I know it. That's just such a banger. It's such a great song. And didn't they uh, do a double guitar solo on that one? I think so. Yeah, I have. You know what? I I just listened you know, to it this morning. I'm just like, God damn it! What? Because. Ah, there, there's a song that they uh, did uh, Ace doubled a solo that's, on. Uh, I know they do on Rock Bottom. There's no solo in this. Rock version. Bottom. That's what I'm thinking but, of. But um, so they're going to Parasite here, right? Yes, Parasite. And, you know, that's another one that I don't think later lineups captured. It, there's something about that that I don't know what it is. There's a looseness or a kind of a. I, I, I sometimes I'll do this with other bands too, but I'll liken it to. Uh, a wooden roller coaster versus a steel roller coaster. Mm-hmm. You know, there's you're going to get a different kind of ride on a wooden roller coaster than you will on a steel roller coaster. And to be honest, and that kind of looseness where you're getting kind of throttled around, yeah, and you're, you feel like you know when you get off, like someone's been beating on your ribs. You know that that you get off a rolling wooden roller coaster. That's the feel I get off of this version of Parasite. It's just a lot more raw, and it feels a lot more you know. Alive for lack, you know, no <laughs> for lack pun of intended. Term. Yeah, because it's just, it's just. Well, we talked earlier. We've talked on uh, previous episodes about how uh, Ace, you know, plays a certain way, and how that's just, uh, you know, when you're trying to play behind that, that just kind, of, that's just a different vibe than say, I would imagine a Tommy Thayer playing it or a Bruce Kulick playing it. If they, you know, if either of them did a version, I'm not really well, sure. I was gonna say, I think Ace is the wooden coaster. Yeah, that's well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I he's think a rickety he's, old wooden roller coaster. I, I think he's the wooden coaster. He wrote the song. It's his riff. I don't think that anyone could do it justice yeah, in play that with band that aside same from feel. him. It's all about the feel. And, and, and plus, Peter at that time. Arguably, almost at his peak. 
with his play. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I, I would say this and Destroyer era were yeah. probably him at his That's peak. Where he's, yeah, he's going to shine the best in, in so, this time. And it's so good I that think they've got this, this point, recording because he's really, really flying here. And, and, he it's also, to- and also... Again, for us wanting to shine light on members that need it, including Peter, for all the crap that Gene and Paul talk about him with not keeping time, not being able to sing, all that, let it go show on the record that every outlet that talks about these overdubs, again, as we mentioned, did not overdub Peter. Yeah. The one supposed real loosey-goosey member of the, the band that you the never knew solid, what to expect. Is the most solid element in this whole in this whole deal, yeah. Yeah, so so I think he deserves major props on all that. Oh, I mean, he's kicking ass and taking names. I mean, you know, he, he's just... And this goes in... I think I said this on the last episode. I said there's a lot of... Um, I, I can't remember if I did, but I've... There's a lot of uh, great guitar players in rock and roll, but there's not a lot of great rock and roll guitar players. Ace is definitely one of them. And then, and then you can say this about drumming too. Uh, you know, Peter Chris. You know, if he's not a technically proficient drummer, guess what? I don't care. I don't yeah. want to hear. You know what? You know, no offense, but fuck that Rush drummer guy. <laughs> No, not he, that I'm happy that he's dead. I'm not. But you know what? <laughs> that does more harm to the raw feel of, of just being an emotive kind of player. I don't want to, you know, can you could you honestly hear that guy, the Rush guy, trying to play Kiss songs and making it good? Absolutely not. Now, this is going to extend to a, a train of thought that'll go to the guys that replace Peter Chris later on. I was going to say. You know, the thing is, is that Peter's playing by the seat of his pants, and he's playing what he feels. And that makes it a lot more exciting. That gives it its energy. That gives it its, you know, he has a swing to his style. And it and it's it's a little loose. And maybe it is a little out of time. And it shines especially on Parasite. But, yeah, spe- all the way through this album. But, yeah, I mean, he's just... He's just a fucking killer drummer. He's the perfect drummer for this band at this time, without a doubt. It, it, yeah, it's just sort of like you know Keith Moon being the perfect drummer for the Who. Yeah, can you imagine Keith Moon playing with any other band? No, exactly. But he doesn't need to. And <laughs> be a really, sloppy mess. You know, Peter didn't need to play necessarily with anybody else, and I don't think anybody else needed to play with Kiss. But we'll get. We'll, we'll, yeah. I just love anomaly <laughs> bands we'll cross, like that. The we'll Who cross is another that good one like that. In another time. Then so, we got She after Parasite, which gave us the uh, the. T- taste of the ace frilly solo moment the that's extended right solo and it's still kind of a piece, that, of, piece of music in itself it is and you know that that whole ride up and then the the, the bend mm-hmm. note that he does he played all five of his solos as uh, eric would say and it's nothing and it's nothing you know i've seen a thousand guitar players be able you know they can play that mm-hmm I saw Andy Krauss when you he was playing guitar for your band uh, at one point. He just whipped that out one time in the middle of it. I was like, oh my God, this dude's crazy. <laughs> so, you know, it's uh, it just works so well for the whole thing. How yeah. it all kind of, you know, it's, it's not so much what they're playing, but how and how it feels. And it's all about feeling here. And you're still mm-hmm. hearing the wild audience going crazy over it, too. And that version of She is, is again, rips. Just way stronger than the, the Dress to Kill version. And something that I like about both Parasite, She, and the next one, Watching You, is the production on it. When those first guitars come in, 
it sounds like a big open room. It doesn't sound like it's crisp kind of coming in in your ear. That doesn't happen right. until the whole band does. Then it's crisp and nice coming in your ear. But, but if it, it's just it, a single guitar, it's that echoey yeah, the room ambient sound. quality, yeah. Yes. And, and, and I think in, when we get to rock and roll over, I think that that's an Eddie Kramerism. Mm, I could see that. He's really I could see good that. at capturing ambient tones. And I think that's, I don't know if that's a thing, but that's the best way I could describe it. It, it makes it. sense. Speaking of guitar tones, it feels like, because uh, I don't know the details of it or anything like that, but it sounds to me like Paul's guitars are more from the live tapes, whereas P, uh, Ace's parts, there's a lot of Ace parts that sound more crisp, like coming from Electric Lady, whereas you know there's a lot of graininess to Paul's guitar sounds. Possibly. I mean, I, I could see Paul kind of, because they even talked about during those shows, active, like decidedly being like, hey, let's not jump around as much so yeah, we don't have to get as many over to us. So I could see Paul kind of holding true to that a little better than Ace would. I, yeah, but, you know, who's to say? I of course, I it's all hearsay. Yeah, I, I can see it being kind of a combination of a little bit of both. They could probably, probably have... Um, I don't, I, you know, who knows? I don't know if they've, you know, multi-tracked that or what. But uh, again, we can only speculate as to what yep. what they actually doctored, doctored or how much. Because, like we said, you know, we know that there's at least one vocal part that references a city. Yeah, I know. So, so it's not know, all vocals. Yeah. So it's you know they've kept they've obviously kept a lot of stuff. I, you know, at this point, I, like I said, it just doesn't matter. This is the mystery that we have as fans now. I know, but it's fun. <laughs> uh, 100,000 years. Mm-hmm. Well, this, do, we, do we have much thoughts on watching you? It's great. I mean, it's, this you live know. version is better than the other one. Yeah, yeah, I'd say so. I mean, yeah, all, everything on here is better, I think, than the studio version. Yeah, that's how you can say about the majority of these tracks. You but know, with uh, moments like uh, 100,000 years. The 12-minute long song. <laughs> Yeah, you get a bass intro on it. You know, Gene gets a moment, but then you get the uh, the drum solo that Peter does with the, all of the uh, uh, the flange effects over it. Yeah, no, no. I assume that was something they would do in the arena, mm-hmm. but I'm sure the flange, as we're hearing it, is doctored in, in the studio. Yeah. Might be a little bit of both, probably. But I mean, uh, you know, recording off of a off of a board, you know. There's the the house sound and then there's the recorded sound. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah. So I don't I don't you know I don't know to what end they were. That was probably done in post. Probably. Um, but I like this because kind of what Cap was bringing up. So you've got the good intro from Gene. You've got a ripping little moment from Ace, and then you've got a Peter Chris drum solo that breaks into preacher paul stanley that i like to refer there to him go. as when he's like addressing the audience and then it rips into one more killer ace solo so it's almost a hundred thousand years even though it sometimes it's a drag to get through especially with as good as peter's solo is listening to it a second third or fourth time it's like all right get to the point but it honestly showcases every member in a really good light everybody gets a moment yeah it's a it's it's one of the highlights on that album, I mean, you know, dropped in on the, I guess, third side. Yep, that's true. Yep. And, Let's start and, with watching and, you. And so it climaxes with Black Diamond. Yes. Which would, you know, if you're looking at it as in concert context, you know, that makes the end of the set, so to speak. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're uh, closer before the closer. You know, you've got the big bombs again. If they're augmented, so what? 
everything, you know. Again, I, you're there. I can remember being a kid listening to this on headphones, laying on the floor, and just feeling like I was, you know, I could close my eyes and just imagine what it was like, you know. Mm-hmm. And I felt like, you know, especially with headphones on, you know, it, it was like you're there. And and I would not have guessed in a million years at that point that any of it had been doctored. Oh I yeah, no, totally. I wouldn't have had any clue, or you know, I, you know, I. It wouldn't have mattered, I don't think, any more than that it does now. But, and to throw a little you know, more love his way, Peter's vocal on Black Diamond. Oh, yeah. Oh, fierce. Yeah. Holy shit. That's where he shined. They were always, it's like, it seems like they would, once he had Beth, it was like, oh, he's going to be the balladeer, mm-hmm. the crooner. And maybe that's how he saw himself. But where he really shines is just belting out some raw fucking BC rock vocal. Yeah. It's like yeah. Rod, it's like Rod Stewart if he was tough. Yeah, yeah. I mean that's and that suited you know Peter so much better I think than the balladeer Peter. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know because it also worked with his personality. We were talking about them building up an aura, having that fierce yelling personality for a Catman character kind of works. And and it seemed like that. And, and when I was a kid looking at it again with with a limited amount of of information available to you. It was almost like you know, as you know, thinking through childlike kind of a rationale. Yeah, the cat guy was quiet like a cat. Mm, you know, mm, he was going to be the George okay. Harrison. And then yeah. all of a sudden, you got this moment where all of a sudden he's just like, <laughs> you know, you just didn't see it coming. You never see it coming, and that's what part of what made that really really cool. I hate. I never thought of it that you way, know? and I totally agree. That's how Peter became my favorite member for a minute because you. You, we see live footage of him singing Black Diamond. You're like, oh shit, the drummer's singing and is killing it. Yeah, that's great. And then you know that that the whole the bomb outro, and mm-hmm. then the 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 audience, the uh, way walk, yeah, the way but how it starts to flange or whatever, yeah. Yep. And you know that's not something you know that was obviously. Mm-hmm. I think was, that, that also was, leads true to the hundred thousand years being done in post. Yeah. It almost sounded like the same effect. <laughs> well, I, as I understand it, the that what do, they, what do they call that a flange? Yeah, yeah. That occurred. It was a sonic abnormality, an anomaly that occurred while they you know because they created that dub of yeah, the yeah. audience. And it just sounded so cool that Eddie Kramer was like, "Oh, leave that," you know. Nice, and nice. So it, there, you know, I he, love those kind of happy it, accidents. And it leads out of the of the track, and then yep. you, of course flip you flip the over. record, and it leads right back in mm-hmm. and, with know. rock bottom. And, and I like this one because it fixes the thing I complained about on last intro. episode. The it intro. shortens up the intro. Yeah, I, I, I never, you know, I think. They could have gotten away with playing Rock Bottom Live even without that intro. Yeah. I, you know, I said I like the intro. I think it, it oh, works. Oh, yeah. We got um, such a great performance from Paul on this version. It's when he started doing the uh, the yeah. big, bigger vocal performances. Yeah, because his Dress to Kill vocal is very subdued. Because it was like, you hit rock bottom and you're there to stay. And then on this one, it's, and you're there to stay. Mm-hmm. Just, just belting it out. Well, you know, that's your live thing. It's... I always felt like Paul Stanley's vocal in the 70s was way better than it was after the 80s. At some point, he had some sort of vocal training or something, and he lost all his rawness and Mm -hmm. all his sass and all of it. And it became almost like you don't like technically the, good the, Paul. Yeah, no, I don't, <laughs> he, he, you know, he moved away from being the wooden coaster to being the steel it, coaster. It, it, yeah, to, yeah, exactly. Yep. I, I mean, like that to, analogy. I think to, we're going to go back to that one a few to times. That's who is in. It probably extended his his uh, 
his uh, ability to sing a little longer, you know, maybe. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But I Honestly, didn't like it. I like this way, you know, the this raw, raspy kind of loose Paul better. Uh-huh. And to be honest, my conjecture, and this is just my opinion, I think him trying to go crazy in the 80s is what's kind of harmed his vocals now. Because Maybe. look at Gene. I, he I can still know. hold it together. Yeah, well, Gene didn't ever sing like exactly. But that's my point. Oh, yeah. Maybe. Yeah. I don't and know. clean living. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. We can speculate on that. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> We're not doctors. I just know that I like it better here. I like yes. the way it sounds here. I like the everything about what they're doing here. Is, is is we're catch we're catching this band as they're just starting to peak, mm-hmm. and we're finding that you know, and even if some of this is re- replicated in the studio, it really though it's still capturing what it is they do on stage. I think a perfect visual representation for this record is you know how uh, on like a slow mo cam like striking a match, you can really see like just the sparks. Like the match isn't lit yet, but you see all the sparks kind of coming off of it. This album almost feels like that mid spark where it's like they're about to be on fire and it's like they're finally hitting it. It's just that perfect moment in time of right before it explodes. it's, It's pretty hot. Mm-hmm. Then no right doubt. after that, we had Cold Jim. Yeah, and I mean, you know, how many people like the taste of alcohol? alcohol. <laughs> I mean, we know now that that's kind of a bullshit rap, but so what? You know, they're all bullshit raps. <laughs> well, speaking of, what do we think of the raps on this? This is a, this is the debut of the Paul Stanley rap is on Alleged, this record. Allegedly, I guess you know if 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 lore is to be believed, uh, most of these uh, stage banner is kind of coming from the cleveland show i think that's okay the, the holdover interesting i, interesting. I don't I'll i don't take know that. i don't know if that's entirely factual but that's the way i've always kind of had it or understood it right um so i've definitely heard stories about bars serving drinks that were called the paul stanley and their uh their mixes were vodka and orange juice orange juice, juice. <laughs> like some vodka and orange juice so, but I think at this point his raps were still good. I think again, also in the '80s is when the raps took a turn because he kept trying to rewrite them, and it's like ah, you're trying too hard. See, that's one thing I was the one thing I was excited about when I saw Kiss a couple of years ago was uh, oh I get to see Paul Stanley rap. <laughs> I know, but it was like hello Charlotte. <laughs> Yeah. And we were saying rap, and the kids are going, I don't want No, he, he, wasn't, rap. he wasn't spitting. He was yeah. doing uh, stage banter. Yeah. There you yeah, go. Yeah, we call, banter. We'll word it for the kids these days so they understand. <laughs> but it worked. And then when, you're, when you're a kid and you're hearing this, it just sounds like it's an exciting kind of like, oh, yeah. You know, and you think in your mm-hmm. head, you know, it's like, oh, I want to hang with these guys. Oh, yeah. You know, kind of thing. Uh, they sound fun. Yeah. So they're still selling an illusion, but so what? You know? At least it's a fun illusion. It's a fun and entertaining illusion. Isn't that yeah. what rock and roll is? And, just selling and, fun? And, and the guys that are the most quiet at this point are the ones that are actually living it. But, exactly. You know, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, for good or for not. And then we have the song that launched them into superstardom, the live version of Rock and Roll All Night. And you mentioned earlier about how uh, one of the songs uh, didn't have a guitar solo on the album, but they had it on this version. Same with mm-hmm. oh, this yeah, song. Yeah, yeah. So what yeah. do you think prompted them to be like, we might need a guitar solo now for this? I don't think it is anything that they can live. It helps extend, I guess, the set or whatever. Again, they were going for a sharp, uh, radio-friendly edit of a single Mm-hmm. You know that we talked about that the the Dress to Kill record seems like it's tailored for radio, albeit 
what radio station is going to play a song like ladies in waiting i don't yeah, know no. <laughs> or room service or you know any insert them, here you know? <laughs> but well rock and roll all night yeah. obviously and they and i think they you know they had their eye on the prize and the live they have more freedom and they can do the, the put the lead in it mm-hmm. ironically that remains in the radio to this day yeah the radio mm-hmm. cut of this live version um you know, but that's finally what connects, and I think it's just again because it has that manic energy and that drive to it. It connected with people in a much more visceral level than the studio version did because it had again because it has all that. Yep, it, and, has, it has the excitement from the audience. You hear them feeding off the message of "I want to rock yeah. and roll all night and party every day." You've got them clapping along, so it's like you almost have that fear of missing out, that FOMO thing of "Oh, if I don't get it, if I'm not." part of the thing i hear all these other people enjoying it and getting it and if i don't i might be the odd one out and that's really what it is like the first time i heard this song it was on that you know compilation cd that i told you about on the back of it it's uh you know a tour photo of paul stanley about to smash his guitar you see the confetti Mm -hmm, and then the sparkling mm -hmm. drum riser from uh peter chris and you know that's the sound that song is the soundtrack to that image and you're like this is the coolest fucking thing as far as a rock and roll live show oh totally and it's no surprise that that wound up being the one really hit and it's just i wish there were other songs that also pushed a little harder i know it's always it's either this or lick it up or some shit like that for classic rock these days especially because the last track right here let me go rock and roll well that's again that's interesting to note that at this point this is still considered their, their their closer this is their big one they're gonna go big and they go with this you know this you know rock and roll all night has not a- exceeded this let me go rock and roll yet this yeah. is the big anthem for them at this point mm-hmm. and you know they it has the extended jam I was going to say, because um, they constructed it so. They constructed with uh, the Gene breakdown bit for, you know, Peter to bring it back up with the pop-pop, the boom-boom, the pop-pop, and well, Ace yeah, busting back in. Speaking of, I talking about Ace Fraley things that you can sing along, that's one of my favorite little things. It's that da na 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 ba da 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 I love that part of the song. Gene does those little slide ups and everything. Yeah, he does too. a little totally slide and really kind of like hammers those strings so it almost sounds like a pluck, but he's not. That's all, that's all <laughs> musical too. That's not some funk bullshit he's doing. That's all part of the song. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, it's it, they go out big. Kiss loves you. Yeah. Rock and roll. I mean, it, and and you know. It's it's perfect live. So what more can you say after hearing that? Even with you know, all the dubs and everything it else, it doesn't need more. It doesn't necessarily. It leaves you kind of maybe wanting more, but you, you know, it's like it's perfect. I mean, as a Kiss fan at that time, it's like you know, it's all of your favorite songs from those first three albums, you know, played better, arguably. Yeah, and, and it has kicked open now. Uh, what will be uh, now an industry standard to have your de facto live album. And, and, I mean, you look at it, like I said, you can name a handful of groups that had successful live albums. You had Live at Leeds. You had Get Your Live at Leeds, out. yeah. You had, you know, Made in Japan, and you had uh, uh, Live at the Fillmore. That's about all I can really think of off the top of my head. Maybe, but maybe after, the Allman Brothers, after, but yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, we're, this, but after Kiss. Coming after Kiss Alive, though, all of a sudden, you know, you, Blue Oyster Cult had two live albums. You know, Frampton Comes Alive. That was giant like, record that was post uh kiss though right yeah uh you know uh, ted nugent's double live gonzo which yeah. to me is 
another penultimate live record and and rush all the world's a stage (laughs) well i mean fair enough they had their live album of course another very important live album cheap trick live at budokan yep so you know and then ramones it's alive they had their double live album and even that was overdubbed yeah well everyone's albums are overdubbed i mean that's that became eagles live which probably was entirely in the studio i think so but you know everyone had their you know, it became part everybody, of the deal. Everybody had, had to put out a live album. You had your live album. So, you know, it changed. It really did change the industry. I mean, mm-hmm. it's one of the tiny ways that Kiss was influential that they don't get credit for and, and uh, you know, probably should. And, you know, this album stands as, as uh, arguably maybe the singular high point of their whole their existence. career this they are uh, this album made their career and it really did and it was a tough one to beat you know but it it established them in a way that they had not previously been able to do on their own with their studio records yeah and it certainly uh kicked them open you know wide open to be an established live act yeah because i in the uh, readings and that they were saying like literally a couple weeks after a live came out, they already started seeing attendance rise. Oh, absolutely. I mean, so it was almost immediate. It was like that album hit a week or so later. And it was like, boom, there they go. It was, it was good. I mean, it still built a little bit over the next, Mm -hmm. you know, this record came out in the fall of 75 and September 10th. Yep. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the drama is still not over with Casablanca at this point. So they still have to pay the bills. Uh, yeah, and within within days of the album shipping, uh, Bill of Coin sends a letter terminating Casablanca, the, severing the partnership between Casablanca and Kiss. Yeah, yeah. And now they've got to scramble to fix all that. But then Casablanca pays the band like millions to stay on board they too. give them a check for two million dollars now where they get that money from it's hard to say and to be fair with kiss alive breaking mm-hmm. that's one of the two punch thing that uh Cosmaca had because they had signed uh they had signed this german record producer named giorgio Moroder, mm-hmm. and his diva of the moment was a singer named donna summer ah yeah that's and, a little no name well at the time yeah oh, no yeah. one knew who she was okay gotcha and they had a, a, a radical underground hit with a 12 inch disco single mm-hmm. and uh, the song called love to love you baby mm, there you go and that was a surprise hit right so they've now got Donna Summer, Donna Summer and Kiss, and Kiss. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, finally giving them, you know, the revenue, the, they, the revenue needed. they needed. That success was necessary for them to survive, and that's how this ends up continuing to be a thing. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise, had all of this tanked, we wouldn't be. This uh, would be Kiss the last yeah, episode of No Time to Turn. <laughs> they, would, they would have finished out the tour, the album. They might have, might have toured to support Kiss Alive. Now, now it's hard to say. You could say that. They probably would have transitioned to another label, but who knows that the yeah. other that another label would have that same 
support. That's one thing Casablanca never faltered on was they always uh, had faith in the band and supported the band. Yeah. It, it, you know, and never was like okay, they we couldn't do it financially. Yeah. And they never did like the okay, we've done two records your way. This third record, we're going to do it our way. You're going to take the makeup off, and we're going to do yeah, something they, different. Yeah, they could have they could have ran into that just mm-hmm. as Cause, easily because when we did dress to kill, it was talking about how they were already out of money. Bogart was going to be in charge of the record already, so clearly the label was being a lot more hands on with Kiss during Dress to Kill. Mm-hmm. How far disconnected would that have been for them to go look you freaks the makeup ain't working we've told you already but but as we just proved with this live album and the the whole thing the whole thing was was absolutely working i mean that cult following was just growing and growing and growing uh we'll close it out with this you know they're the famously and this is an important moment i think in the history is they get invited to cadillac michigan for the high school football team. For the high school football team. And they play that high school. And they you know, they come in and play in a gymnasium. concert in the gymnasium. Now can you imagine being a kid and having KISS, even if they're relatively quote unquote unknown at this yeah. point, the breaking band though come and play in your high school gym? God. With I mean, their full show, their, probably too. Well, very close to it. Down. It was a little bit scaled down, but uh, you know, yeah. like this. This was in the seventies. You could still bring us uh, a little bit of fireworks into a gymnasium. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, you know, and then they, of course, you know, you've seen the photos that exist of them, you know, on the football field, and the entire school is painted up with kiss makeup it's crazy the helicopter comes in of course famously only can fly a mile yeah which you know that's all they could afford but it was enough <laughs> to make them you have the Give dramatic an exit and entrance yeah they had they received the key to the city mm-hmm. the you know the the mayor's there and the town council they're all wearing kiss makeup the local state representative is there he's wearing kiss makeup i mean it's crazy it's like we landed on Kiss World. Well, but, and, and they parade them through, the, you know, downtown. A legit parade, by a the way. A legit parade. Yeah. You know, and I mean, you know, it. but I think the important part to note about this is this is probably the very beginning of a transition where Kiss has kind of sold itself as this sort of kind of. I don't want to say S and M, but you know there was there was a certain shade of dangerous uh, danger yeah. to them, even if it's a manufactured sense of danger it still that was the, their marketability yeah and i think that's when all of a sudden the sites turn and go oh we need to really focus on this being a little more kid friendly because mm-hmm. they have this is where the money might be yeah, you know the transition from where they get go from being just a rock and roll band and now being part well, of the it's, cultural it's zeitgeist not necessarily a transition but it's the first kind of inkling that oh wait a minute we might be looking at this a little bit wrong mm-hmm. i agree i would agree and, totally and, and, i mean it's and it, you know it's going to be a slow turn but it really is going to be a very fast turn because everything's happened so fast hence no time to turn <laughs> and so we will discuss this more in depth because another thing happens and this is going to be my little teaser for the next episode Ooh. in september of 75 financed by bill of coin they're in the studio in September of 75 with Bob Ezrin. Mm-hmm. Now, what are they doing? Recording a new record. No, find out next week. <laughs> yeah, well, we, you know, are they recording 
the ground, you know, the basic tracks for Destroyer, or are they just doing demos? Mm. I don't know. We'll we'll figure that out. But and, and it's being again, this is not being paid for by Casablanca, <laughs> uh, and that's going to lead us to uh, their next major. Very important record, a landmark record. I'm excited about that one because we've talked about it, you know, about how it's not anybody's favorite here at the table, but there's so much to unpack on this record. There really is. And I think this is when we'll really start digging into the minutiae because exactly as you mentioned, there's a lot of demos for this record. Well, there's a lot. There's a lot of information out there. Yeah, so it's going to be fun. I think it's going to be a fun one. So hopefully you're uh, taking this ride with us and we hope that you'll join us again next time. Until then, uh, I'm Russ Ward, and for Cap Nunn and Alex Stiff, this is No Time to Turn. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening. Please insert another coin by supporting the show for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash somethinggoodnetwork.